Uh, hey, let's pray together before we dive in, shall we? Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, we, we bless you that we can know that you love us and that it's your deep, deep desire uh, for us to turn towards you, to seek you, to draw close to you, and that you want to give us every good thing. So we turn to you now, Jesus, and uh, we hold our hands up and ask you to pour out your spirit uh, upon us. Pour out your love into our hearts through the spirit whom you've given us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we're, we're in this series moving through the statements of the Apostles' Creed. And uh, the, the, the Apostles' Creed is a very, uh, not only important, but very helpful document in that it summarizes kind of the well-worn paths of the Christian faith. So really, whether you feel like you've been uh, walking this journey uh, of Christianity for many, many years, or whether you feel like you're at the trailhead, kind of looking up the slope for the very first time, wondering if this way might be for you, uh, the Apostles' Creed is very, very helpful. And I've, I've been using this illustration. Um, this, this map is from the National Geographic uh, a national Mapping Service. I, I learned that you can get these maps online. They're quad maps, topographical maps. They include every last detail. The orange sections are residential, so they don't include all of the structures in those zones. But otherwise, everything on the face of the earth out there is on this map. Every structure, elevation. I mean, it's unbelievable if you look at this thing up close. It has every, every last detail. So as we're thinking about the Apostles' Creed, if that's the Bible, then this is the Apostles' Creed. The major thoroughfares. Just the simple way to get around in Christianity. The, the, the big things that matter. So that's, that's the deal. I mean, there's, there's a time for the map with every last detail, and there's a time for the pocket map with just the major roads. Right? And, and we have both in the faith. So we're working our way through the creed. Last week, Pastor Josh led us through this statement of the creed. Uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And this, of course, has to do with uh, the identity and birth of Jesus. And today, we move on to the death and resurrection of Jesus with this statement in the creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. And like all of the the phrases in the Apostles' Creed, it's based directly on Scripture. So let's look at one of the passages of Scripture upon which this statement from the the Creed is is primarily based. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the first eight verses. Let me me read it for us. This is Paul writing to the church in, in Corinth. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, 
then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so just a just quick review of the Apostles' Creed if you happen to be joining us for the first time. It's, it's called the Apostles' Creed, not because the apostles wrote it, but because it's a summary of their teaching. It's a summary of the, the apostolic witness that we have in the scriptures. So in that sense, it's a summary of the major teachings of, of the Bible. Um, there's, there's, there's movement in, in the creed. It takes us from God the Father to God the Son to God the Holy Spirit to some other things we believe about the church and the communion of saints and forgiveness of sins and resurrection of our own bodies and these kinds of things. It was originally used as uh, a preparation class in the early church for people who had come to faith in Jesus and were seeking to be baptized in the church. And our best understanding is it was a three-year uh, a course of curriculum whereby those new to the faith would dive into the deeper teachings of Christianity. And this, this was used as a guide or something of a syllabus for that three-year process. So in that sense, every phrase in this thing is loaded with me- meaning and can be unpacked over, over weeks, really. So we're, we're just kind of looking at each statement and, and breaking it down a little bit. So death and resurrection, right? The first statement in this phrasing of the creed he, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, so you might ask yourself, how did Pontius Pilate make it into the Apostles' Creed? I mean, only three other people are, are, are uh, presented by name. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Pontius Pilate's in pretty good company, all right? How did he get in here? What's the deal? Why is he so important? You might, you might have heard the story about the Sunday school teacher who asked the, the kids to draw a picture of what they learned in class that day and, and she went by and saw that a little boy had drawn Joseph, Mary, and Jesus in the back of an airplane. And she said, that's not in the Bible. The little boy said, sure it is. That's, that's Pontius the pilot and this is the flight to Egypt. <laughs> what? Of course, come on. Without a pilot, you can't go anywhere. That's the deal. Pontius Pilate is named in the creed to anchor this whole thing in history. Because you can research uh, history and the name Pontius Pilate is all over the place, outside of the Bible. Right? I, I don't know about your story or how you came to faith in Jesus. I look around and I know many friends who were raised in the church and I, I know many friends who weren't raised in the church. I wasn't raised in the church. So as a 22-year-old, at Miami of Ohio, I was in the place of believing that Jesus was a real person, but also thinking that pretty much everything else I found in the Bible was religious folklore that had uh, come to be over the ages as, as people kind of believed in Jesus. I didn't, didn't really think that these were primarily historical claims. I thought that was just religious stuff, you know, kind, kind of made up. Until one night in the sesquicentennial chapel on the campus of Miami of Ohio. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> Say that five times fast. I was involved in a Bible study our senior year. And we were studying uh, several books, but one of the references was to this passage in Luke, Luke 4, where there's a record of 
uh, Jesus in the city of, in the village of Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, and he was teaching in the synagogue, and some stuff happened. And after they were done at the synagogue, they went to the home of Simon Peter because Peter lived in Capernaum. And when they arrived in uh, Peter's home, they found Peter's mother-in-law to have a very bad fever and, and in bed. And as the scripture tells us, Jesus healed her. And she got up and began to wait on them. And the Bible study leader that night at Miami told this whole story. And he said, and you know, I was, I was over there in the Holy Land not long ago. And you can actually go and see that house. They've excavated it. You can see the stones. And I thought, wait, what? What? You mean there's an actual house? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, archaeologists found this. They found a Byzantine octagonal church built in the 5th century and in the Byzantine Empire they placed those over critically important places in church history and as they dug away that those Byzantine ruins they found under it a 1st century home that had gone through renovations and went from being a a simple uh, two or three room home very nonchalant fishing village by the Sea of Galilee it had been remodeled all of this evidence is archaeologically determined. The walls had been taken out. It had been plastered, built into a primary gathering hall. The thinking being that Peter's home in Capernaum became one of the very first gathering places for the early church. And I'm thinking, wait, you can go over there and see this place? Yep. It's right there. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. This really happened. It's not a figment of someone's imagination. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Let's not miss that part. The 20th century was one of the bloodiest on record in the history of the world. Actually, the bloodiest on record in the history of the world. Because of that, there emerged a movement known as protest atheism. Now, they weren't protesting atheism. These were atheists saying, in essence, we cannot believe in a God who stays safely in heaven when there's so much suffering on earth. We can't do it. We can't take that sort of God seriously. Uh, You know, if he doesn't know what it's like to suffer, God doesn't know anything about us at all. To which the serious Christian says, Amen. We completely agree with you. Completely. We would not be able to believe in a God like that either. And we don't. Because we believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. We believe that God is acquainted with suffering, has entered into our suffering by becoming one of us and bearing the worst the world had to offer. The story of Christianity is not the story of God remaining safely in heaven while we suffer down here. It's the story of God entering finally and fully into the worst of our experience, the darkest valley. And that bridges right into the next phrase of the creed. He was crucified, died, and and was buried. Crucified. 
I mean, the horror of it. I, I know I've done it before. I won't do it today. But you can unpack what it's physically like to die of crucifixion. It is horrific. I mean, he bore the worst the world had to offer. And he died. Died. He suffered and died. He didn't get better. As crazy as it might seem, that, that, that takes care of 50% of the arguments as to why Jesus' tomb was empty back in the ancient world. Most, uh, oh, half of the arguments were, well, you know, he just fainted and he revived in the tomb and was able to push the stone away and took off. No, he died. That's, that's the claim. And was buried in the traditional way in a traditional tomb. Was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. Now, th- this needs a little explanation because over the, over the years... The, the meaning of our English word hell has changed. In the scripture, there are two separate words, uh, specifically in, in the ancient Greek. Hades is the place of the dead or the place of the, the departed. That's where uh, the, the concept was, that's where people go when they die before all things have been made right in, in Christ. And there's, an, there's another conversation there, but that's for another day. And then, there, then there's Gehenna, which is probably what mean, we mean when we say hell, this was kind of the final place of rest, retribution after the judgment of all things, uh, a kind of a, a separation from God forever. Now, when the Apostles' Creed made its way into English the first time, hell meant the first of these words, the place of the departed, the dead. Uh, so what Christians mean when we say he descended to hell is actually he descended to the dead. And you, if you've been around the church, you've probably heard versions of the Apostles' Creed that actually, that actually say that. Uh, he descended to the dead. So it just takes a little explanation. So the, the point being made is that, that Jesus, Jesus really died. And he not only suffered and knows what it's like to suffer in this life, He has preceded us every step of the way through death's darkest valley up to and including that valley of the shadow of death and death itself. He has experienced everything that we will experience. And he knows the way. I mean, that's why we focus at funerals on John 14, where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, would I have told you that I do? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. Oh. And then suddenly you move to the Romans 8 stuff, right? When that gets in your heart, and, and it's not just a religious idea in your head, but when you believe it with your whole being, then with Paul, suddenly, who, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? You know, it's conquered. Jesus has taken every step 
that we will travel. There is nothing in our life, no path, no journey of which he is unaware. He's with us all the time, the entire way, helping us along. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to that place of the dead. But that was not the end. The third day, he rose again. Out of that place of the dead. Was really dead, but became not dead again. I know it's a battle in your mind and spirit because it's a continuous battle in my mind and spirit. Really? Yes. Without a doubt. It happened historically. The third day, he rose again from the dead. That's the claim. And again, I take great comfort in the fact it's not just a religious idea or a philosophical thought. It is historical claim upon which the whole thing hangs, right? The the scripture in which the the kids led us earlier, right? But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I love that line in the Bible. Because it's all cards on the table, if it's proved that Jesus was not raised from the dead, we'll pack it up and do something more, more important with our lives than this whole gig. All right. So th- those are the phrases. And, and here's the thing. I mean, Paul wrote it. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. These are the main things. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised And he appeared to a lot of people who actually saw him and could touch his body that had been dead but was not dead anymore. This is the main thing. And again, as someone who grew up not not in the church and and came to faith later in life, and that's, that's probably not fair because I would imagine if you were raised in the church, at some point in your life, you have to wrestle with this thing and make it your own anyway. So it's not whether you were raised in the church or out of the church. It's, it's about the wrestling, right? And the making this thing your own. It's really easy in that wrestling match to get hung up on stuff of secondary importance. Like maybe the question of suffering. It's important. But with regard to the claims of the Christian faith, it's secondary. It's not not important. It's just Secondary. Or maybe you get really hung up in um, how, how do I have to take the Bible literally or some teaching of Scripture that's particularly troubling to you. I had a Bible study leader early in my Christian faith who was so very helpful, and he had an illustration that has stuck with me throughout the years. I still use it, actually. He said, if something's really troubling you and you really don't understand it, don't walk away, first of all, from the faith, Uh, Don't use that as an excuse. Don't stuff it down and decide to do the dysfunctional thing and act like it's not there. Just in your inner world, imagine a bookshelf 
and take that issue and just put it up on the shelf for a moment. Keep it in your home. Don't get rid of it. But just put it on the shelf for a moment. Or a month. Or years. Right? So many people have rejected Christianity for what they understand it to teach. When it really doesn't teach that at all. The place to start, if you're considering the claims of Jesus, is right here. Passed on to you as of first importance. These are the primary things. That Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Crucially important. It's a historical fact that Jesus died. The claim is that he died for our sins. The claim is that in that death, something happened. The, the great transaction Uh, I don't know whether you're a PC or a Mac person, but imagine your word processor on your screen and there's a paragraph you need to move from here to another document. You highlight it and press control, uh, control C, copy, and then you move to the other document and highlight the paragraph you want to replace and press control V, paste, right? Most of us have probably done this. That's the transaction that God offers us in Jesus. What God is offering us is to highlight uh, the, the perfect performance record of Jesus' resume, to copy it, and not just to add it to your resume, but to highlight all of your shortcomings and failures and all the stuff we've done wrong or failed to do right. And replace all of that with the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus. That's the gospel. I mean, that's the offer that the Lord is making to us. That's a pretty good deal. It's free. All we have to do is say, yeah, I'd like that. Right? And it's not receiving an idea It's not changing religion. It's placing your trust in a person who is alive right now. Remember, the claims are historical. He he died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. Now, there's faith involved, no doubt. But but this is the thing, right? And and it really is the thing. The the resurrection, the, the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, that really is the linchpin. From there, we trace back even to the, to the death part, honestly. I, I heard this explained once, and it, it was so very helpful to me. I know I've used it before. The difference between Christianity and religion is this. If you can imagine all of humanity gathered in thick fog, and amongst us, we have no, no idea where to go. And voices are yelling, hey, we should go that way. There's some light over there. And another voice says, no, no, there's more light over here. This is the way for sure. I know it. No, 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 this, it's, up, it's up here. I see it. There's more light that way. I can tell. And you look around and you just think, this all looks like fog to me. If that's the state of humanity, then imagine someone coming to us from the other side of the fog coming out of the fog to us and saying, 
follow me, I know the way. That would be something completely different. And that's the claim of Christianity. That someone has come from the other side of the fog to us. That's Christmas. Right? He moved into our neighborhood and became one of us. And he said, I know the way. It's the life of Jesus. And then he led us out through his death and resurrection, showing us the possibility for each one of us and promising that when we experience that, he will come back and walk with us every step of the way. And that's not the only thing, just to be with God in heaven forever, but to be like Jesus now in in our character and competence, to live in God's kingdom and presence now and forever. That's the thing. So, Jesus suffered. He knows us that way. He died for our sins, the copy and paste thing. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. It really happened. And it means he is alive right now. And he's for people, not against people. Jesus isn't waiting to condemn people. He's waiting to receive people. So we're invited, once again, to turn. You know, wherever you are today, this week, this month, in this season of your life, you're invited to turn back to the Lord, to turn to Jesus maybe for the first time, to set your heart on seeking, to set your heart on exploring, if that's where you're at. Whatever it is, to move toward God. Don't just listen and not respond. And if there's something going on in your heart, please, please respond. And we have a tangible way to do that today. You know, we, we've been leaning into some, some more intentional practices of prayer in our congregation, trying to place prayer as our primary core value. And, and one of those has been including times of praying for one another in the service. So we're going to do that in a moment. And there's, uh, the, the band will come up and, and lead us in worship a little bit. So we'll all be singing and praying uh, a, as we go as a body. Uh, but if, if you would like to pray with someone, there'll be a station up here and a station in the back. Uh, and, and this is what Christians do. We pray for one another. Uh, Jesus is alive right now. He came not just to save us in a nebulous sense, not just to punch a ticket to heaven. He came to save us from our sins right now. So if, if you're struggling with something, come for prayer. There's a priestly confidence. If, if there's someone for whom your heart is burdened and you would like prayer for them, come and let's pray for that person, those family members or friends or, or whoever it is in your life that, that you'd like prayer for. So for yourself, uh, for others, for something in this world that uh, breaks your heart and you know breaks God's heart too, let's pray for those things. Come and let's pray. If, if you need some kind of healing, uh, spiritual, emotional, physical healing, let's pray for that. Um, you know, Jesus did that. So I don't think it's a stretch to say, well, if he did it, maybe we should kind of do what he did. And, and pray healing over people. So as we sing, uh, please be praying in your spirits, whatever's on, on your heart, and come and let's pray for one another.